Welcome to Season 3 of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Welcome to another episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, and today we have Dr. Kashat Patel, medical oncologist and CEO of Carolina Blood and Cancer Center, the current president of the Community Oncology Alliance, or COA, and author of a new book, Between Life and Death. From Despair to Hope. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Patel. Thank you very much, Jerome, and, and thank you, Karen, for facilitating this conversation and, and, and in allowing me to be part of the team today, and I would love to share my experience. So let's go right ahead, Jerome. Absolutely. So, Dr. Patel, I, I have to tell you this. You've been on our wish list since we started, and we're about two years and 50 episodes <laughs> in. Uh, and, and for our listeners, I only gave three current titles of, of what your, your roles are now, but you're a special kind of person because you have you know, duties and roles as like medical directors to health plans and, and a leading voice in medical associations. And you even train and coach physicians to be more effective in end-of-life situations that may come out in your book. We'll talk about that shortly. But uh, to start, can you share with our audience what attracted you to the field of medical oncology and what gives you the drive to so generously give your time and your talents to the international cancer community? That's awesome question. And, and I'm going to reveal my age here. I have to drive back 50 years in my life. So <laughs> when I was nine years old, I, I went to watch a movie with my dad. The movie was one of the Bollywood movies called Anand, A-N-A-N-D. And it literal meaning is like bliss. Mm. It was focused around a guy who gets lymphoma and then dies of it because there was no treatment option available at the time. He was a very popular and very famous hero. So I was kind of very sad. I, I, I liked that actor. And so I kept trying for three days. I was barely nine years old. And my dad, he was like a saint. said, you know, boy, don't be sad. I mean, why don't you grow up and learn how to cure cancer? And it stuck into my mind. And then long behold, started my journey through high school. And like anybody else, when I finished my high school, I was 23rd in the state, so I had the option of going for space science. I think at the time, the moon race was on. I'm going back to 1978. And I almost forgot my promise to myself. And mm -hmm. uh, I, was, I was about to sign up to go to an engineering school uh, to study the space science. And I think that day, you know, my dad handed me check for the fees, but he had kind of uh, sadness in his eyes. He said, I thought you were going to become a doctor. And, and it, it reminded me all the memories came back and I tore that check. I applied to med school and got in the med school of my choice in my hometown. So I, I continued my journey thereafter. And, and the rest is a story. So I became an oncologist in India. And then, you know, I went to England and had to do it all over again. I think the way every country's healthcare system is, you have to train again. And I did my training again in UK. And then uh, having been in England for four and a half years, 
I felt, you know, I could do more by coming to the U.S. because this is the most progressive and most, I would say, dynamic society for the research. So I came to U.S. in 1996, and I had to go through it all again. And a lot of time, my friends asked me, how could you do the same residency, the same chore, working 100 hours a week, three times in your life? And I step back and remind them that I don't make the same mistake again. So mm-hmm. that's my story of becoming an oncologist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Karen, I don't know about you, but see, as, as a podcast <laughs> guest, Dr. Patel, the, the things that are remarkable to me is I always gravitate to like the career path of the story. That is an mm-hmm. incredible story of the seeds that are planted. I agree, Jerome. I have to say, Dr. Patel, your career story became very personal as I was listening. I'm a lymphoma survivor, and mine was in a very advanced form. So I didn't have a lot of time to think about what I was going to do. Plus, I was a new mom. So to hear that a movie about another lymphoma patient and your dad's advice is what inspired you to have a career, amazing career, should mention as an oncologist, I think is just pretty awesome. Absolutely. Dr. Patel, one topic that you've been very upfront and passionate about is addressing healthcare disparities. And just a few months ago, I listened to a webinar that you participated in. I think it was for the American Journal of Managed Care. Correct. Along with uh, Drs. Deborah Pratt and Karen Wingfield, mm-hmm. where you discussed a number of factors that contribute to disparities in health in uh, cancer care, specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and what's clear from that conversation is there's disparities everywhere, all across the patient care continuum. So, I mean, when we talk about you know disparities, where do we start? Like, how can we begin to think about the problem and see the bigger picture in order to make it or even propose effective changes that will benefit cancer patients in uh, certain target populations? That's a very interesting topic, and you know, you exactly know where to kind of get my interest attracted. So, I actually started hearing more about disparity with COVID nineteen. I mean, we knew disparities existed before, but it's the COVID nineteen that brought to light the extent to which the population can be impacted by multiple factors, and then I think cancer health disparity came to light when uh, the American Association of Cancer Research did a lot of their work to try and find out the extent of disparities. So question is, what are we dealing with? Uh, About one in three cancer deaths can be prevented if we didn't have disparities. What's the financial impact? Almost $230 billion of excess spending between 2003 and 2006. And what's the indirect expense close to a trillion dollars in three years. So so when we ask, what is it that we are dealing with? And when I share this number, Jerome, with anybody, I've shared it with my congressmen, my local state senators, with my local state representatives. They all are in a state of shock. Mm. And it's because I, I don't think it was any deliberate. I, I think it's all came to light because we learned about diversity in each human being. You know, I'm different than you. You're different than Karen. Karen may be different than a Pacific Islander. So because there's so much biological diversity, but that alone is not kind of enough to explain disparities. So in last uh, six months, what I've done is I've, I've read over 200 papers cover to cover. 
plus one of the uh, book from uh, National Academy of Medical Sciences, the IOM called Shorter Lives, Poorer Health. And then that sums up multiple public health issues that we deal with. So in last two weeks, I prepared what I call the Cancer Health Disparity Grid, and I'll send it to you later on once you're done with conversation. So I started with the social determinants of health, place where you are born, family that you grow up with, cultural belief that you have, economic status that you grow up, literacy that you have, biological diversity that you have, zip code that you live in, travel distance to your healthcare provider. Some of these are changeable, some of these are not. So I think that social determinants of health is probably number one that actually impacts some of the parts. And the next one came to my light was uh, the preventive screening. I was not aware, Jerome, uh, that up to 80% of the patients who are eligible for lung cancer screening based on the USPTF criteria get screened for it. And and this was a shocking number. It actually, it it, it came literally flying on my face and then I read more about it and that's true. I think people who have 30 plus history of smoking who qualify for screening still don't get it. So, and then these are in short portion. It's not that they're running short. It's not about economy. It's about just the ignorance. So the second grid I prepared was that of the uh, access to screening. The third grid was actually access to testing. And then testing includes mammography, cervical cancer screening, lung cancer screening, colorectal, but also the precision medicine, you know, access to biomarker testing. We all know that lung cancer testing rate is half as much in the minority population as compared to mainstream population. We don't have information, genetic information on the ethnic minorities because the places where all the studies are created, uh, the the institutions located in the big cities, they attract more ethnocentric population, particularly in European continents. Yeah. So so multiple factors contribute to the... uh, disparities and then going on to further access to care now so your insurance your out-of-pocket cost your travel distance to the place where you go all of these actually add to disparities and the last one is access to clinical trials so in my greed i've actually kind of classified them based on hierarchical characteristics and I, i plan to start writing a blog on that probably within two weeks or so so that we create almost like a movement uh, yeah. of, of, of what we are dealing with. And then I'll pause it and take any further questions here. Well, you, you said a lot. So let, let's back up and kind of double click, as my good friend Aubrey Kelly says, on a couple of things. Um, you mentioned with COVID, right, how uh-huh. the disparities were exacerbated and became more apparent. And COVID is a good example that change in the healthcare system is not impossible, you know, when it needs to happen. Um, mm-hmm. So the the rapid access to testing and, and, and those types of things um, that were good innovations created, in some cases, unintended consequences of disparities. So, you know, telemedicine became a great thing to stay in contact and, and keep care providers in touch with patients. But there 
exposed a, a disparity in those uh, of the digital divide, per se. Um, one thing that you mentioned is the disparity in kind of the reference genome. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think even the Community Oncology Alliance has issued a position statement on disparities in healthcare, and I heard you mention specifically that precision medicine treatment mm-hmm. um, could present challenges for diverse populations that are not equitably represented in clinical research. Tell us a little more about that. So that's a very interesting uh, you know, challenge that we all are going to face over the next 20 years. The Genome-Wide Association Studies, which is the, the global group that tracks the human genome analysis, you can do it by CGP, Comprehensive Genomic Profiling, whole exome sequencing, whole genome sequencing. Uh, and most of these are federally funded program. And they, they track the ethnicity of the human genome analysis uh, per kind of, you know, population. And what they were found, what they were kind of shocked with in 2009, I remember it, it could be a, a year here and there, is that 90% plus representation in the uh, human genome analysis were of the uh, European ancestry. Now, mm-hmm. we are looking at the global population. So Europeans make about 9.7% of the global population. And in 2009, in spite of them making, in spite of European population, or Northern European ancestry making less than 10% of the population bucket, there was nine times more representation on the genome studies. They, the, the gene, you know, this came as a kind of rude awakening. So most of the countries tried to improve that number. But even as just recently, as far as 2018, it still shows that 80% plus samples that are analyzed in the uh, genomic studies still mm-hmm. are, are that of the uh, Northern European ancestry and only 2% of the African-American, maybe of Africans, not just the African black population, maybe 10% Asians and, and so on and so forth. The implications are, the new drugs that are going to be developed based on precision medicine is going to be linked to the access to information. So if the access to information is restricted to just one ethnic proportion, how can we expect some sort of fairness that the drugs will work equally well in every population? Yeah, And then I'm sure you know about the case in Hawaii where the Supreme Court, Hawaii State actually, has fined two large pharma companies $417 million each uh, because they claim that a couple of drugs that are used in patients after the heart attack has a very small chance of working in Pacific Islands compared to mainstream Northern European population. According to them, that the judgment, the chance of that drug working is one Pacific Islander to seven uh, Northern European ancestry populations. So, so we come to know that the biological diversity in the genome can dictate the outcome to a certain extent. And this is what worries me most, that in 10 years from now, we may have 
a specific drug for a certain population, but we may be lagging behind by appropriate intervention for other populations. The Precision Medicine Podcast will continue right after this. With the explosion of new data and biomarkers in cancer today, how can healthcare professionals keep pace to know which genes will best inform treatment decisions? Trapello knows. Trapello is the first single technology platform used by oncologists, labs, and payers to resolve the complexities of precision medicine in real time. Trapello knows which patients to test and when. It knows which tests are most appropriate, which labs are preferred, and which treatments are most likely to be reimbursed. Visit trapellohealth.com to learn how you can give cancer patients the most appropriate, evidence-based treatment options when time matters most. And some of the things that you mentioned, you mentioned access, right? Mm-hmm. And, and access can stretch across multiple functions of the the care continuum. Access, just in this conversation, you mentioned access to screening, access to testing, access to clinical trials. Um, Dr. Karen Wingfield was the lead author on a paper published in uh, JCO Oncology Practice, whose focus was uh, to develop a an actionable framework to address cancer care disparities in the U.S., and that can be found on ascopubs.org for those mm-hmm. who are interested. Um, and you posted it on LinkedIn. Uh, obviously, Dr. Patel is a great LinkedIn follow. Um, this working group it decided the framework should focus on more prevalent malignancies and of men and women and targeted those specific areas, screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. You mentioned a slightly different list. But the undertone of all of the, those is an emphasis on addressing barriers to access within these different domains. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you made the comment earlier that 34% of all cancer deaths could be prevented if they did not have disparities in access to cancer care. You know, what are some thoughts around how we can increase access across the care continuum? Uh. That's, you know, very, very interesting topic. And I don't think, you know, we could take one size fits all approach. And and yeah. the more I dive deeper into the disparity space, the more I study, the more I study on the political current, the more I realize the solution will not come from the new kind of, you know, legislation or even new kind of, you know, mandate. I think the solution will come from local pilots. So what we see is what we can address it. For example, if an uninsured patient comes to my clinic, I'm able to find a foundation, I'm able to find economic help, I'm able to find free drugs for that patient, I'm able to write off the treatment costs for that patient. What we don't know is what we don't know what the extent of the other side is, is people who are not able to access the treatment. And then it's not... I think it's simply because they are not able to get screened. They don't even know that there's a system exists to create the ecosystem to help them. What we are going to do, and then I hope and pray that stakeholders stand up to support me, is to create a pilot called NOLA, No More Left Alone, in the Congressional District 5 of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, to create an ecosystem from the time that you find patients where they are. So I just was on call with 
Alliance Imaging team, and I'm asking them that would you be able to prepare a mobile lung cancer screening program uh, using the low dose uh, CT scan? It's because, you know, for me, you and Canon on this conversation, it's easy to think, yeah, I'll go 20 times to doctor's office. But for someone who barely makes $900 a month, who probably has a broken truck, who may mm-hmm. have to travel 45 miles one way, if they have to go to doctor's office for 10 different screening, beginning from pneumonia shot, you know, a single shot, to cervical cancer screening, to mammography, to lung cancer, they may end up in spending about $800 in transportation back and forth to doctor's offices in a year's time. That's equivalent of their monthly income. And then, so we never put that, that, that value of that intervention to that human being. So we are looking into creating, I mean, I, I hate to use this word caravan, but I, you know, I was talking to, again, my dear friend uh, who works for Alliance Imaging, Tina, and I said, can we just have a program that once every three months you select a place, you know, more like a faith or worship place that you, in the parking lot, you take portable mammography machine, you take portable phlebotomy in it where you could just draw the blood, and you take portable CT scan machine, and you designate once every three months that you'll be rotating to that place. That may be the way that we can reach out to people who do not come out and understand the importance, you know, health literacy, social determinants of health. So patients or the citizens are willing to participate in the care, but they do not have resources to access what we are able to offer. So unless we break the silos of the compartments that exist within the healthcare delivery system, we cannot solve it. It reminds me of Mahatma Gandhi's famous quote that when you want to bring in a change, when you want to do something, remember the face of the poor of the poorest and the weakest of the weak. And if that intervention makes a difference in them, do it. If not, it may not be helpful. Mm. Incredible. So powerful. That is, that it is. It's so powerful. Um, NOLA, something to remember. I will actually um, send you, I think I'll send you uh, the greed as well as what we plan to contemplate to do that. I've, I've actually started working with state Medicaid agency, local city mayor, my congressman. I think we have to bring everyone together. And, and if I can touch 40 lives in one year in our congressional district, 40 times 400 congressional districts, about 16,000 lives could be touched by these sort of pilots. Well, I'm pretty confident that uh, we've got some allies that can uh, contribute to this effort. I think we'll get our good friend Michelle Buzzhart still involved. And I think we, we, we may have some people who might want to contribute to this uh, because mm-hmm. I hear a lot of you know conversations around disparities, but uh, not many experts speaking at it at the level in which you are. So um, I'm actually I'm an operations guy. So, you know, I, I hope that we can get to see each other face to face, Jerome. But once you meet, I think you'll realize that I try to, if I if I create a problem, I also plan to bring a solution. I'm not somebody who wants that intellectual visibility by talking smart things. I really want to bring in solution. And, and, and you're right. I think there's so much help pouring out. I mean, there are people who are willing to open up their 
doors and hearts. In fact, Michelle, I've talked to her and she said she wants to look at exploring that as well. So I do think I'll be able to find support that's good enough. Uh, I plan to start at sometime in September, October, a formal kind of, you know, kickoff ceremony. Well, consider us allies and uh, mm-hmm. hopefully we do some good and come back on the podcast to talk about it. Absolutely. Now, I mentioned earlier your book, Dr. Patel, you've got a an enormous heart for your patients and also other care providers. In fact, you are a certified trainer for physicians um, with the education in palliative and end-of-life care. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also a trainer who teaches other doctors how to initiate discussions around death and dying. Mm-hmm. Your, your new book is titled Between Life and Death, From Despair to Hope. Tell us what inspired you to write the book and the message that you would want readers to take away from that. You're touching my heart here, Jerome, because uh, like I said, I've I've lived in three different continents. I have uh, 11 different cities. And, uh, you know, the only thing I can say is that I was never prepared to understand how to talk to someone about that departure from this planet. It was hard and struggle for me at personal level. No medical school education formally kind of prepares you beyond like three or four lectures. Residency does not prepare you. And everything is becomes a transactional. But when I started building up my own practice, when I saw that patients, they were getting ready to die, but I had, I had difficulty telling them, you know, uh, well, I may not see you again. And and I started kind of, you know, jotting down my own notes. It was more like uh, on-the-job training. And I, I started going to my patients' homes uh, once I put them in the hospice care to make sure that I continued that bridge. And to a certain extent, I used to tell them that, call me if you think that he or she is passing away. Uh, I'll be happy to be there. And I personally witnessed several patients leaving this world in my own kind of, you know, presence. And and long behold, King, along this patient who was a British uh, citizen, but he moved to U.S., he was one of the Royal Air Force pilots. And his wife was a director of the cancer center at our hospital. And uh, he had a stage four lung cancer, but having grown up in England, he knew more about hospice than anybody else in our area. And his first question was that, you know, Dr. Patel, how long do I have to live? So in my usual style, I said, well, about, you know, two to three months if you don't do anything and up to a year if you do something. He said, can you guarantee that? I said, no, neither of that, I said, can be guaranteed. I said, I don't know if I'll be around tomorrow or not. So I can't guarantee about your life. So after two or three meetings, he said, you know what, Doc, I've decided I don't want to do anything whatsoever. But the only request I have is, would you share your experience of how you have seen other patients dying? What happens when they die? What happens to the loved ones when when the patient dies? And, and, and how do they cope with that? And what happens to the body after that? It was a challenge for me. Uh, but I said, okay, let's start uh, having a conversation. So we decided that... Every Wednesday, which used to be my half day, I would sit under a healing dome. We have a beautiful copper dome at my office, which is an outdoor structure. And we would sit there and we start talking about, you know, 
different cases. So I started discussing cases from as young as 26-year-old girl to somebody who was 90 years old. And after about seven sessions, I could see that he was getting comfortable about his own test. So then he said, well, doc, I, I think I'm ready for it. And thank you for doing this for me. And I want to add a couple of more kind of, you know, uh, scenario there because before he, we kind of pretty much, you know, said goodbye, he said, my only prayer in this world is, he was more like an agnostic. He didn't go to church, but he was more agnostic. And his only prayer is that uh, I don't want my wife and my daughter to see me dying. And he said, my another daughter who's flying from Australia may not be able to see me. I hope I can get some way to kind of put a closure to her. And then he went home. He was in a hospice care. And, uh, you know, his wife called me one evening saying that, Kashyap, I think this may be last night for him. So I went to see him and kind of he was almost comatose. I touched his hand. I kind of gently whispered in his ear and I told his wife and daughter as well that would you please give him permission to leave because I think he's wanting your permission. So they both whispered in his ear as well. And I left, I came home. And next morning, his wife called and said, you know, uh, Harry's not there anymore. And I said, what happened? She said, very interesting thing happened. It was, I think, probably springtime and the windows were open. And she said, we have two stray cats that we've kind of adopted. And all of a sudden, around one in the morning, they just jumped out of the bed and ran out. So my uh, friend and her daughter, they both opened the door and ran out to see what happened, what was happening to the cats. And that's when uh, Harry passed away. Mm -hmm. So even though Harry was not in control, somehow that he was able to uh, dictate when he took his last breath, for the lack of better words. And coincidentally, his daughter was actually on the flight from Australia to the U.S. She landed next morning. She came home and asked his uh, his wife, I mean her mom, that was this a time that dad passed away? And she said, yeah, how do you know? She said, just I felt something. Mm. So these are the things that we can't explain with science. But, but, but these are some real-life experiences that people have experienced. And... Combining that with uh, studying the different faiths concept of death, you know, for me to explain to Harry about what happens to body after death, I had to go back and learn in my own way from multiple different denominational literature about how Judaism perceives death, how Islam perceives death, how Christianity perceives death, how we kind of pretty much what we call industrialized death as a process, you know, during the Civil War time, how the whole idea about bombing came into existence, keeping body came into existence. It was a learning for me, but I, I've shared it as much as I can within the confines of the book. And I'm sure there are a number of incredible stories about uh, your patients' experience mm -hmm. with patients mm -hmm. and families. Um, you know, it's not lost on me that um, as a cancer care provider, mm -hmm. uh, you're not immune. To this stuff. I mean, the, the, we're, we're human beings at the end of the day. Um, from the perspective of mentoring and hearing from your peers, um, how do you how do you suggest they manage the everyday stresses of just a medical practice? But the fact that you know some patients do die. 
you know jerem and in karen every day i walk against my own horizon of the death i i i don't i don't get dissuaded because the only thing i know for sure that will happen to all of us who exist in the manifest physical form is the physical form will perish depending on your faith whether you believe in the reincarnation whether you believe in going back to the holy father whether you believe in going back to you know different realm it it all depends on the conditioning and culture as well as faith but the only thing i can say for sure is that i'm i'm racing towards that horizon that's going to come one day instead of being dissuaded by not you know doing anything that fun i i i feel that live the life to the fullest and be ready for the worst to come any day so accepting death with grace and blessing allows us to live to the fullest and knowing that it's something that inevitable for all of us if i do not know where i came from where i was before i was born why do i worry about where am i going after i'm dead wow mm-hmm. incredible 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 conversation dr kasha patel ceo of carolina blood and cancer center current president of the community oncology alliance um speaking of the book and your social media uh is there a website or a place where they can go pick up a copy of the book and yeah. follow you on social media? Actually, so the 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 book is available on the Amazon as well as there's a website www.betweenlifeanddeath.org and that's a website and all of my social media accounts are tied to that. I also have a Twitter account and LinkedIn account in my name, Kasha Patel Oncologist. So, and Between Life and Death also has its own social media account as well. So, look out for the updates on the book what's coming next i have a two more book contracts i'll i'll kind of talk to you next time when we talk about it uh, absolutely i can't wait to do that well before we let you go we were talking kind of a, in our green room experience karen i got <laughs> call it now um for someone who is as busy as dr kesha patel who travels internationally who who's who heads and leads a practice and and also a large community uh oncology association Uh we always like to dig into what your hobbies are but this is not your first book. You actually are a bit of a photojournalist and have published uh a coffee table book of photos in nature, national parks. Tell yeah. us about that. So <laughs> I've I've done everything possible that I can within this one lifetime, you know. I I can say I've almost like eight lives. I got my ninth life going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh when i was uh, in my med school finishing my med school i i had a crazy idea of traveling across india on a motorcycle and i bought a camera slung it across my back and i i, I was kind of you know popular enough to attract two other fr- three other friends so four of us traveled started traveling on the motorcycles back in india uh, in 1984 and we traveled ac- around like two months different parts of the country different parts of the state and our rule was that we would not be spending money to staying in the motel so we would knock somebody's door in those those people trusted strangers would say we are four medical students just finished med school we are in between residency and med school do you mind if we stay with you so i i i travel in a tribal belt through different terrains and and compiled all the photographs and then i came back and started my residency 
And in my third year of residency, I was free in the evening and I was getting bored. So I went to local media, the Indian Express group of newspapers and said, you know, do you mind if I work here in any capacity? So so the owner of the, it was a very big newspaper group and owner was very kind of smart. So he interviews me, he said, you know, there's a small cholera epidemic that has broken out in this slum. Would you go and do some report on that? I went there, next day did report, put it on his desk. And he said, can you start working today? So I started working as a photojournalist in that group. And and over the years, I've collected over like 5,000 different beautiful pictures. Mm. And I saw that I needed to share my journey as a human being apart from as a doctor. So I compiled some of the best pictures that I took across the world, beginning from the national parks to, you know, the, the tribal belt to the wildlife in Africa. And then I said, either I can have a structured flow or just kind of random flow. And I thought, let me kind of almost create an analogy to the life and death. So I said, let me create a title of the book called From the Elements to Life, Journey to the Self. So in the first 50 or so pictures, I have the photographs of the National Parks Monument beginning from the earth, the water, the fire, the space the birds, and then we move into the animals and then hierarchy leading to human beings. And with each photo, I chose my wife and my son and his wife chose beautiful quotes. And this is self-published book. It's got its own ISBN number, but it's it's kind of, uh, it's interesting journey. And I'll send you both a copy of that book. uh, And then I'm I'm sure you probably would love that as well. I would. It will yeah. definitely be on our coffee table. My wife, Kimberly, is a huge <laughs> fan, is a Great. huge fan of national parks. Awesome. Same here. Thank you, Dr. Patel. I really look forward to getting the book and already feel compelled to get my own national park images out of storage and dust them off, so to speak. And to close us out on what is the 50th episode of the Precision Medicine podcast, on behalf of myself, Karen Cushman, producer, our host, Jerome Madison, all of our listeners and our sponsor, Trapello. Thank you, Dr. Kashat Patel, for being an amazing guest on the Precision Medicine Podcast today and for the winding journey you just took us all on, what it means to live life full and with purpose and what that looks like in the end. I think in this 40 plus minutes or so, you slowed time for all of us, which in today's world is a real gift. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, both Karen and, and Jerome, and I look forward to seeing you in person sometime soon. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello and on LinkedIn at the Trapello company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode. <laughs>